All right, all right. Well, what is up, Abundant Life Church? You guys doing good this morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, so glad to have you with us uh, today, especially when I welcome those of you joining us online, as well as those of you joining us at our campuses in Sandy and, of course, Vancouver campus. In fact, can we just appreciate them right now? And, of course, to all of you, again, a huge happy Father's Day. Uh, you know, being a, a dad myself, I'll be honest, it's one of my favorite days of the year. And uh, one of the reasons is one of my favorite days of the year is, is that I know that when I leave here, I can go home and I can uh, put on my combo of uh, tube socks and sandals. I can pull out my 20-year-old University of Oklahoma t-shirt from the garage sale pile. And I can boldly walk out and face the world in my dad's swag. And not only will they have to accept it, but it's the one time of the year it's in vogue. So as a dad, I love this day. And uh, of course, it's on that note, I can't think of a more aptly named sermon series uh, than the one we're in right now entitled Upside Down. As uh, uh, last week, uh, Pastor George was here and, and really kicked this series off uh, talking about uh, this passage or this a series of passages in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. You know, maybe it's a sermon that, that Jesus gave, probably his most famous sermon. It's a sermon that had a message in it that would literally have turned upside down a lot of the common thoughts and ideologies of what faith and hope and life was all about to the people of that day. It was a countercultural message that still resonates and still makes waves even today. And maybe no beatitude or portion of this um, Sermon on the Mount reflects this countercultural message more than the first beatitude that we're going to be tackling in Matthew 5, 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And, and it says this. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can just sort of imagine this now. Imagine, you know, Jesus, he's speaking to this crowd of listeners. And, and he starts off with these words, blessed are, the, blessed are those, blessed are you. Now, you can just sort of imagine all the hearers, they just sort of kind of start quieting everyone down. Like, whoa, what did he say? You know, the ladies are like turning down Oprah like, whoa, whoa, what, what did he just say? You know, the guys are like, whoa. You know, they actually put down the, the sports controller. I mean, they're, they're like, they're focused. See, see, Jesus knew how to get their attention and, and getting their attention by starting off by saying this word and using this term, blessed, blessed. In fact, the, the Greek word there is makarios, and it simply means this. It means sacred delight, sacred delight, sacred because it was from God, delight because it truly satisfies the deepest longings of the heart. See, Jesus knew how to get their attention because he knew at the core of what drives so many of us. See, what he's talking about here is happiness. He's like, hey, you want to be happy? You want to experience happiness in your life? Then listen up. In the 1600s, there was a Frenchman named Pascal, and he kind of speaks of, of this tendency in all of us, this pursuit in all of us for happiness. He says this. He says, all men seek happiness. Whatever means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. But the will never makes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. See, we all pursue happiness. 
And God designed us that way. God designed us to be happiness seekers, to experience happiness. So you're not going to wake up tomorrow and be like, you know what? I got enough happiness. I had enough happiness yesterday. I'm good today. You know, in fact, you just, you can take all my happiness. You give it around to, pass it around to everyone else. You're never going to wake up that, you know, God created us to live in and to experience happiness, to experience joy, which leads to this question, so what makes people happy today? In fact, some years back, Psychology Today, they asked this very question. They asked it to 52,000 people, and these were some of their responses. At the top of the list was friends and social life. Uh, another one was a good job. Another was, was being in love, personal growth, a good financial situation, having a home or apartment, being attractive. Uh, again, notice most, if not all of these, have something to do, though, with the externals, what is going on around us. See, for a lot of us, we can tend to buy into the ideal that happiness is about having the right circumstances. It, it's sort of this kind of win and then mentality. It's win and then thinking. Like, when I get the bigger house, then I'll be happy. When I get the new job, then I'll, I'll feel fulfilled. When, when I meet Mr. or Mrs. Wright, then I'll have some true satisfaction in life. When I finally get whatever it is, then I'll find true happiness. And listen, this isn't something that's new to humanity. In fact, the Bible has an entire book devoted to one man's journey and a guy by the name of Solomon and his pursuit and his life of sort of this win and then thinking, a whole book entitled Ecclesiastes. And in fact, in this guy by the name of Solomon, he, he, he says, kind of describes this journey he's on in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. He says, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is all about. Now, I got to tell you, this may be quite possibly one of the biggest understatements of the year, because not only did he pursue happiness, not only did he pursue this trying to fill this empty void inside his life with anything and everything he could get in his hands. I mean, he did it like it was like on steroids. I mean, think about some of the stuff this guy accumulated. He had a house, his house, get this, his house took 13 years to build. He had walls lined with precious gems and stones and wood from all around the world. His bank account, historians tell us that if, his, if you put all the money he had in today's financial terms, he, he would have had a, a, an earnings of $225 million a year coming in. And that's tax-free. I mean, he was a king, right? And of course, wisdom and knowledge, the Bible says he was the wisest guy to ever live. Now, some could maybe debate that because this was also the same guy who had 700 wives, which I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking that might not go so well. Can you imagine the honey-do list that this guy had to deal with all the time? And yet for all of his accumulating of things, experiencing pleasure, achieving success, he gets to the end of it all, to the end of someday. If I just had this, if I just had that. And listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2.17. It says all of it's meaningless, all of it just chasing after the wind. And see, it's again, it's into this kind of common mindset, this common pursuit, this common belief, because a lot of us, you know, we, we sit there and we kind of nod and agree, but, but a lot of us, we do the same thing when it comes to happiness. We have the same pursuit, and, and it's into this culture that Jesus comes in and just flips the script, turns it upside down. He speaks of a happiness that, that's not found in being rich with stuff or rich with things or rich with, with all these other things that happen in our life, but poor in spirit. 
but poor in spirit. Look what he says here in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, important to know what he doesn't mean here when he says poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are those who, who talk down about themselves, who tear themselves down, who, who have low self-esteem, who, who say, oh, I'm no good. I'm, I'm just junk. Listen, Jesus it didn't die for junk. Jesus died for you and for me, people created in the image of God, of value and of worth. No, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who have learned to depend on God. Learn to depend on God. See, it's a happiness not determined by what's happening around me, but rather by what's happening within me. Uh, some years back, I got the opportunity to, to travel to Tanzania and and, and honestly, when I went there, there were a lot of things I expected to see. You know, I expected to come across a lot of poverty. I expected to come across a lot of joblessness. I expected to come across some very hard living conditions, you know, a lack of basic needs. And in many ways, I saw all those things. And yet the thing that I remember most from that time in Tanzania was not what I expected to see, but the one thing I didn't expect to see. See, traveling in some of these remote villages and encountering some of these uh, remote people that lived in the middle of nowhere, they had nothing. Uh, again, uh, you know, poor materially, and yet as I encountered them, I encountered a joy and a happiness that honestly I never encountered even amongst the richest of people here in the States. See, again, they might have been poor materially, uh, but they were rich in Christ, See, they understood firsthand that when Jesus is all you have, you realize that he's all you really ever need in life. Amen. They had a joy, a happiness. It's something in our Western culture I think sometimes we miss and sometimes we look past. This thing called humility and awareness that I wasn't created to do life on my own, that I can't do life on my own. By myself, I don't have simply what it takes. They understood that humility and happiness, they go hand in hand. If you want to be a happier person, then you and I, it takes us becoming more humble people. So how does that work? How do we grasp what humility is all about? Well, we got to look at the flip side of that. And the flip side of it is this thing called pride. This thing called pride. I, I, I remember um, some time back taking my boy to a, a museum in Bend. And um, we're walking around. At the time, they had this traveling butterfly museum. And it was really cool. You kind of go in there, and it's like hot. It's like super sun. It's great. You kind of got your spa in while you're like checking out all these exhibits. It's really cool. Um, but, but I'm there, and my boy's like holding out his arms, and all these butterflies are coming and landing on him. And, you know, he's worried that they're going to devour him or sting him or whatever the case is. But he's just like, you know, kind of freaking out a little bit. And, and uh, one of the workers comes over and is like, no, it's okay. And, and she points out one butterfly on him in particular. And it was this huge butterfly, and it had these two massive black spots on the wings. And she uh, points to my, my boy and points to this butterfly and says, you know, you see that? See, the, those, those, those spots on there, it's this butterfly's defense mechanism. See, when it holds its wings out, uh, when predators are look to devour it, they get thrown off because they see these two spots that look like big eyes. In other words, it makes itself look way bigger and way stronger than it really is. And isn't that really how pride works too in our lives? Ultimately, it's nothing more than a defense mechanism. 
making us try to look bigger and stronger than we really are, that hopefully no one will notice our true weaknesses, no one will notice our true insecurities, no one will notice our true doubts, no one will see the real us. This pride that, that shows itself through our lives through things like justification, where we make excuses for our actions even when we might know they are wrong. Blame, when we, instead of taking responsibility, we, we blame everyone else but ourselves. Maybe denial, rather than being objective and, and dealing with reality, we just sort of ignore the truth. Or isolation, we allow ourselves to be out of touch, not only with ourselves, but those closest to us. And listen, before you think, oh, I don't struggle with pride. That's not me. You know, truth is, we all struggle with it to some degree. In fact, if you doubt that, just uh, go home today and, and grab a group photo with you in it. And when you look at that photo, guess who's the first person that you look for in that photo, right? You. You know, you look for you. And how many of you ladies know, by the way, too, in that photo, if you don't look good, nobody in that photo looks good. Like that photo just like miraculously like disappears, Right? See, again, we all struggle with this thing called pride. And listen, the danger in pride is sometimes when we get so caught up trying to hide our weaknesses, trying to hide the reality of who we are, we can lose sight of our true strength. We can lose sight of this, this strength which is found in humility, found in this need and this dependence on our God. I love what the Bible says about this. He says, his strength is made perfect actually in our weakness. In other words, in our humility. Because see, uh, in humility, the first thing we come to discover about humility and how it works in our life is that in humility, I invite God's grace into my life. I invite God's grace into my life. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, now what is grace? Well, it's many things, but, but one of them is, is God's power in our life to deal with life, Right? I like what it says in Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, when you think about it, uh, uh, humility and pride are both a form of confidence, right? You know, pride is a, is a form of confidence in ourself that I can do this, I can handle this on my own. Whereas humility is a form of confidence in our God. See, pride says, I don't need God. Humility says, God is all I need to walk in joy and victory and contentment in this life. Second thing humility does is it helps me to have an accurate perspective of myself. Uh, again, pride, when we are focused too much on ourselves, can cause us to lose perspective in this life, to lose sight of where I really fall in the food chain of life. Whereas humility helps us to refocus, it helps us to realize that while we may be in the picture, we are not the entire picture. Winston Churchill uh, once, once was asked this, and I love this, says, it, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed overflowing? Uh, Churchill, he goes on to reply, says, it's quite flattering, but whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, and I was, instead of being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. <laughs> See, again, when we possess a spirit of humility, it helps us to keep an accurate perspective of ourself and the world around us. That, that, that great things ultimately happen in our lives whenever we stop seeing ourselves as God's gift to others and begin seeing others as God's gift to us. Third thing is this, is that humility enables me to learn from my losses and make the most of my mistakes. 
See, it takes humility to encounter and to take hold of the, the goodness and the, the, the grace of this message of the gospel, right? You can't take hold of the good news of the gospel without first taking hold of it and walking with the courage of humility, uh, taking hold of this good news that at the end of the day, when it comes to getting to God, when it comes to receiving his grace and his mercy, it's not about me somehow being good enough for God somehow accomplishing enough for God. No, the good news of the gospel is that his grace is enough for me and for you, enough for my past, and get this, also my present and also my future. You know, I think too often we, we sometimes, when we do give our lives to Christ, we can have this mindset to think that, that when I surrender my life to Christ, right, when I give it over to him and I move to this side of the cross, that somehow I won't struggle with the same things I struggled with before. That somehow I won't fail the way I failed before. Somehow I won't make the mistakes I used to make before. But can I tell you what I've discovered that is on this side of the cross, I struggle with all the same things in many ways that I struggled with on this side of the cross. But listen, the only difference is that on this side of the cross, I have his grace. On this side of the cross, I've discovered a grace that is enough to pick me back up and to overcome no matter what failure, no matter what issue, no matter what failings I might have in my life. On this side of the cross, I've discovered a grace that reminds me that my failures and my mistakes don't have to define me. In fact, not only do they have to not define me, but God can actually use them to refine me, to, to, to stretch me, to grow me to make me into who he created me to be. So you might ask, well, this is great. You know, humility, it's, it's really our strength in many ways when we have the courage to admit our weakness and allow his perfect strength to flow into our lives. But, but practically, how do we grow in this virtue of humility? Well, just kind of quickly, a few things here. The first thing is this, is that we've got to keep the big picture in mind. Keep the big picture in mind. Psalm 8 Verses three through four says this. It says, when I gaze to the skies and meditate on your creation, on the moon and the stars and all you have made, I can't help but wonder why you care about mortals, sons and daughters of men, specks of dust floating about the cosmos. I like how the message translation puts this. It says, I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self and wonder, why you bother with us? Why take a second look our way even at all? Yeah, I think it's been said of a former president, John F. Kennedy, that he kept a, a small plaque in the White House, and on it there was this inscription that I love. It says, oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. Well, what a great reminder at the end of the day that we're not all that, right? Um, growing up, uh, my brother and I, we were huge uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme fans. Uh, yeah, all the guys like, yeah, yeah. And I remember when he first came out, we thought he was going to be the ultimate action star. Like, forget Stallone, forget Schwarzenegger. Jean-Claude Van Damme was going to be the guy. And so whenever he came out with a new movie, we were always the first ones at the movie theater. I mean, we were there. We, we never missed one. And the first couple of his were just amazing. I mean, Bloodsport, come on. That's a masterpiece. Cinematic masterpiece, right? You know, and he started, started off so strong. 
But, but after about like the fourth movie, we started noticing a little bit of a problem. We noticed that when we would go to the movie theater, after about the fourth movie he came out with, we were the only ones in the movie theater. <laughs> like apparently everyone else had lost interest in Jean-Claude Van Damme. And again, remember, now we thought he was going to be it. We thought he was going to be the guy. But the problem with Jean-Claude Van Damme is I think that somewhere along the line is that he also thought he was it. He thought he was going to be the guy. See, when it started out, it was just him as like the star and this action hero and stuff. But by about the third movie, Jean-Claude seemed to think, well, you know what? If I can be the star of this movie, why not also be the co-star as well? You know, and so he releases like three more movies after it where not only is he the good guy, the star, but he goes mano a mano against himself because apparently no one else was qualified to battle Jean-Claude Van Damme, but who else is Jean-Claude Van Damme? And if that wasn't bad enough, by like the eighth movie, he decides, you know what, I'm going to direct my own movie too. So here you got this guy, he's the star, the co-star, and the director, now, I share that with you because how many of you know that's probably the recipe for a not-so-great movie or story, right? Probably not the most epic of, of movies, probably not going to be, you know, giving out Oscars to this thing. And I share that because the truth is, you know, when it comes to our lives as well, listen, if you want to live an epic story, you want to live an epic life, you got to learn to get your eyes off of just you. You got to learn to walk in this thing called humility. Learn to, learn to take a bigger perspective and realize that we're just a part of the story, of a bigger story of our incredible and amazing God. Keeping the big picture in mind. Second thing is this, is be mindful of your own vulnerability. Be mindful of your own vulnerability. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, stay alert. Oh, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, again, pride blinds us uh, to the fact that while we may be able to kind of fool everyone else to believing that we look like a lion and we are a lion, at the end of the day, we're still just a butterfly. We're, we're still fragile. We're still vulnerable. We're still susceptible to crash and burn in our lives. You, you know, you doubt that, you just listen to the words of Paul. You know, talk about a guy who, who you look at and think, oh, man, that, that guy... That guy was so, you know, such a man of faith. He could never slip. He could never mess up. He could never fall. And yet listen to what he says in Romans 7, uh, verses 19, 24, and 25. He says, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in our Lord Jesus. Again, all of us are susceptible to sin. All of us are capable of messing up. All of us are just one step away from stupid, right? See, be mindful of your own vulnerability. Third thing is this, is remain teachable. Man, never, never lose that heart of a student. Oh, man, we always uh, somehow, when we never get to that place where we somehow think we've arrived, may we always be learning, may we always be asking and listening more than we're talking, May we always be seeking to know him more, to grow in him more. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. I love that. Fourth thing is this, is serve others, serving others. You know, Jesus, he was the ultimate picture of humility, a picture of a humility formed not by, by tearing himself down, but by lifting others up through serving them, through blessing them, through pulling out a towel as opposed to the throwing on the crown. Philippians 2, 5, 8 says this, says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. 
He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. Again, you want to practically take a step into developing more humility in your life. For many of us, it starts with rolling up our sleeves and serving, rolling up our sleeves and getting involved and make a difference and live for something bigger than ourselves. Fifth thing is this, possess a grateful spirit. In other words, maintain an attitude of gratitude. Be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks to God no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. See, living with a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving reminds us that, that ultimately we're not in this life alone. We're dependent on others. There's a Chinese proverb that I love. It says, those who drink the water must remember those who dug the well. In other words, we need uh, the help of others. Possessing a grateful spirit helps us to remember that everything we do, every accomplishment we have, every milestone we pass on has come in part because of the efforts of others. There's no self-made people in this world. And if we can remember that, we can begin to take a step in possessing a grateful spirit. And then the last thought on fostering humility is this, and that is simply live at the foot of the cross. Live at the foot of the cross. Again, I can so identify with Paul when I think of myself, you know, at the end of the day, you and I, we've got nothing to, to brag about when we look at our lives in the big scope of things, and yet we have every reason to live with humility. Galatians 6.14 says, may I never boast about anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like what Max Lucado says here. He says, do you need affirmation? Does your self-esteem need attention? You don't need to drop names or show off. You need only to pause at the base of the cross and be reminded of this. The maker of the stars would rather die for you than live without you. And that's a fact. So if you need to brag, brag about that. Again, happy are those who know their need for God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I, I want to give some of you here in this room that opportunity right now to, to, to literally change your life, to take a step in humility and ultimately a step towards victory. Truth is, when some of you came in here, you came in here bringing some heavy baggage. Uh, maybe uh, when you hear those words, happy and blessed, that's the last thing you would use to describe your life. Your situation, your family, your job. And yet the good news of the gospel is this, is that you and I, we don't have to wait for our circumstances to change, to find satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in this life. But we do have to have the courage to be willing to experience a change of heart. The courage to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I can't do this life on my own. Jesus, I'm taking a step towards you. Jesus, I recognize my poverty of spirit and that I need you. You're my strength. Without you, I'm nothing. If that's you this morning, I want you just in your heart to just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. 
I believe that you loved me enough to die on the cross to pay the price of my sin in full. And right now, Lord, I confess you as Lord and Savior of my life. Because of you, Jesus, starting right now, I will never, ever be the same. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.